Now the lounge is full of farmers for the seven. Hey everybody, welcome back to Rocks Across the Pond, a curling podcast. My name is Ryan McGee, coming to you from Richmond, Virginia, and joining me from across the pond, see what we did there, uh, our friend, our professor of Peel, Jonathan Habercroft in Southampton, England. Jonathan, how are you doing today? I'm pretty good. I'm a bit tired. I spent most of the weekend at Fenton's Rink uh, coaching, so that was fun. We did... uh, a learn to curl better session for some, I guess, first year plus curlers who have been curling for a little bit, but want to improve their game. And then today we were coaching some of the junior teams, uh, like the two national teams and a few of the kind of developmental teams that we have at the ranks. So a lot of coaching, a bit burned out, but I think I was like on ice for seven hours this weekend and a couple of off ice like lectures. So it's good, exhausting, but, but a good time. I got to see you uh, throw a takeout shot this weekend. Uh oh! How you did? Uh, did <laughs> you ambushed me there? <laughs> it, it was on your uh, junior curling team's uh, Instagram. They uh, they did a video of you throwing a takeout and posted it. So yeah, got to see you did throw I, a rock. Did I make it? <laughs> uh, they they cut off the video before the rock got to the house. So no, uh, the world will never know. Ah, drama. All right. Well, that's it's good to know. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, you were being videoed secretly. Uh, I'm not surprised. Anyway, we'll <laughs> get to social media, you know, these days. So uh, they they run their Instagram page, uh, and uh, they get to do with it as they wish. You should probably keep your eye on them uh, uh, when. <laughs> when you're when you're coaching them at uh, at junior B's later this year, you should probably probably keep an eye on whether or not you're being filmed. That's that's a good point. I will I will keep an eye for that. Uh, they'll probably catch me. It's a long week, and I'm not always at my best. They may catch me at not my best and post that. Or sleeping. Sleeping is there's a lot of sleeping going on there. Uh, it's a kind of an exhausting week. So, so we have uh, a. Really interesting guest uh, this week that you were able to interview. Um, I was unable to take part because I was at work, uh, and that those kind of things happen when we're dealing with the time change, like you and I are. Um, so, do you want to introduce uh, who our guest is? Who's actually a very high level uh, curling coach in the international curling world. Yeah, so uh, we were lucky to get... So basically, uh, we're going to interview today Tony Zumak, who was for the last Olympic cycle the head of coaching for uh, Team Great Britain. And the Olympic cycle before that was head of wheelchair curling for the British Paralympic team. Uh, He's like a level four coach. He's originally from Saskatchewan and uh, is kind of a top level international coach. I, the, the reason he ended up on the podcast is because uh, I bumped into him when I was up in Sterling this summer and he said, he listened to the podcast. And so <laughs> the danger of listening to the podcast is we might put you on. Uh, <laughs> so, <laughs> and we kind of, that opened up a kind of a channel for like a little back and forth. Um, the, the thing that like, with, about Tony, that's kind of really impressive to me is the first time I met him is 
Um, the English Curling Association had reached out to the British Curling Association for some coaching support for the, our juniors. And Tony actually volunteered. So he's the head of British coaching. He actually said he'd volunteered and came down for a weekend to Fenton's rank. So, uh, and put on a fantastic weekend, was extremely patient. Like the skill level of the juniors he's dealing with is a long way, as you can imagine, from the Dave Murdochs and the, the Bruce Lewitts and the Eve Muirheads of the world. And he's coaching those people. Uh, most of the week, but he was completely comfortable adapting his knowledge, his presentation style for, you know, uh, juniors aging in range from 13 to, to 18. So uh, that, it was kind of a pretty good experience. I got to know him then, and I, I learned a lot just from shadowing him during that. And I think, as you'll find out on this interview, he's got a lot of insights uh, into how the game's developed, into how coaching works, into where he thinks the game is going. And uh so I'll just, I guess we just turn it over to him. Yeah, you uh, you guys got into a lot of really interesting topics. Uh, the things that I were mo- most in- was most interested in uh, was that you guys, I was glad that you guys went into wheelchair curling quite a bit because it's a subject that I don't know a whole lot about. And I'm sure a lot of our listeners also don't. So it was very interesting to hear him talk about coaching those teams and the challenges that they face. The other thing I found interesting was when he started talking about uh, his kind of philosophy on coaching, uh, to me, a lot of the things he said are things that can be taken away from the curling world and into the regular world. As someone who recently has been put in a management position, there were a lot of things in there that I probably need to apply to the things that I do in life. So a very interesting conversation with Tony Zumak. Here is Jonathan and Tony. So I'm joined now with uh, Tony Zumak, who was the head coach of British Curling from 2015 to 2018, uh, and has kind of been co- and also coached in the Paralympics uh, for the British wheelchair team from 2011 to 2015. And today we want to talk about uh, coaching and curling coaching, which is an area that I think's kind of really grown over the last decade with the growth of the Olympics. And Tony's been very kind of instrumental and kind of an active participant in those developments. So. Tony, uh, how exactly did you get into coaching to begin with? Yeah, Jonathan, I think when I was, um, you know, 16, 17, 18 years old, uh, the, the parent that was coaching us was kind of moving through the system at the same time we were. And I also played a lot of competitive ice hockey growing up. And what I noticed was that ice hockey coaches definitely had philosophies and they had education behind them and they had um, – some training in other areas. And I didn't think that the, the curling coaches that I was working with as an athlete at that time actually had sufficient skills to, to progress as a professional coach. And that's not to demean them. What they gave me was a huge development opportunity and going, I kind of wanted to see, could you take curling to a professional level? So it was really the influences of my coaches as a junior curler. And then obviously growing up in Saskatchewan and playing against a lot of really top teams you know, I recognized pretty early that if I didn't make it as an athlete, I still wanted to stay involved in the game. And being involved as a coach is as close as you're going to get to the ice. So why not uh, see how far I could go with that? I guess I assume you initially began kind of in a volunteer role. So was it kind of volunteering at your local rink or? Yeah. So the first thing that happened was I started giving back to the junior program that I actually came out of. Elmer Schmidt was um, a legend in, in, in Regina at the Caledonian Curling Club. And, you know, he was always looking to have his, uh, his athletes give back to the system. So he had approached me about starting to take my levels. And, you know, in Canada, we're really big on level one, two, three, four, and five. And at that time, he was the three 
areas. There was theory, there was practical, and there was technical. So he really pushed me early to kind of get into that. And I started to really develop a passion for it. And you work from a volunteer base to then doing schools, groups, and then starting to do corporate functions. And, and one thing kind of snowballed into another. I got to know some of the kids that I was coaching at that level. And there was a junior curling opportunity that came up with um, a team by the name of Rob Marquardt, um, real good junior in Regina at the time. And he had Bruce Sennison curling with him, um, who I had a little bit of experience with. And, you know, they'd asked me if I wanted to be a team coach. So that kind of morphed into the, the where I am today, that first experience of being a team coach in, you know, like 1990 in, in Saskatchewan and, and getting out there and kind of going week in, week out with the guys. And I got to go to a provincial championship with them. Um, and that kind of really stoked the fire. And I thought that this is something I wanted to do for as long as I could do it. Okay. So how did you then make a transition from kind of a volunteer role into to kind of making it a paid gig, even if it was kind of part-time paid gig? Yeah, I think once I got into the coaching, I always treated it like I was a professional coach, even though I wasn't getting paid to start with. My wife and I talked about how much I was really enjoying it. And what we looked at was how many opportunities could we create to make sure I was always moving in the direction of getting to the end goal for me, which was a full-time paid job in a national program. I ended up getting a great opportunity to, to go to the Glencoe Club in Calgary, Alberta. I was running my own golf and curling store in Regina and and then I was still doing some coaching and it was all great, but was really kind of going to, to try to get to that next level. And the Glencoe Club was looking for a curling director. Um, my wife really encouraged me to, to give that a shot. And we talked about shutting the business down and, and moving lock, stock and barrel to Calgary. So I went ahead with the interview. Um, they were kind enough to, to give me that opportunity. Brett Waldruff was the, the, the sports director of the Glencoe at the time. And, and Ray Brett was instrumental in, in allowing me to come in and kind of really grow with the system they also paid for my level four at the national coaching institute in calgary alberta which again was um, a huge benefit to me because that really gave me a platform now to be able to go i can finish with a coaching diploma and actually have something to hang my hat on here that was going to really help move me to that professional rank which is kind of what i was looking for so um uh, huge kudos to, to breton and to ray breton and the whole glencoe club for really supporting all of us as, as sport professionals there and really encouraging us to continue our education and move further with the sport. Um, and that's kind of what happened. I think that's, I think is Glencoe kind of unique in kind of trying to fold in um, a coaching element into kind of a club curling club manager or director role or because most of the clubs I've played at the, the rink manager runs the leagues and takes care of the ice and all that, but there's not much co coaching for club players kind of put into that role. So yeah, I think when I first went to the Glencoe, uh, um, again, my boss, Brett um, Brett Waldruff, he was the curling coordinator before me, and he kind of knew what he wanted to get out of that. And all of the other sports of the club have professionals, and tennis had four or five professionals, badminton had two, squash had two. There were seven sports in, in one club. So the, the philosophy there was, you know, make the members um, as good as we could possibly make them and whether that was competitive or whether that was recreational. So, again, whether I was doing kids lessons or whether I was doing corporate functions or whether I was doing senior women's league, I always treated it like I was really trying to give them the best that I could give and maximize the learning of my of my teaching skills. And I think the Glencoe was unique in that environment. And, and the membership, I think, really appreciated that all the way around because all of us pros were, were really treated like first-class citizens there. And we really 
live that lifestyle of belonging to a private club and, and being involved in that. Behind the scenes, it kind of showed me the politics of, of an organization of that size and working alongside other people, learning from other sports professionals and other disciplines. We had some fabulous coaches there, uh, people who have played their sport at the Olympic level and, and, and watching and learning from them was, again, a huge learning opportunity for me. So um, that really was kind of the, the kick on to, to where I was going to go after that. Yeah, and so I guess your your next role, at least going off your profile on LinkedIn, is was national wheelchair coach for British curling, and uh, from 2011 to 2014. So, how did you make that transition from a curling club director, club pro, to coaching uh, a wheelchair team com- competing in the Paralympics? So when I was taking my level four at the NCI in Calgary, the the second year of that is coaching a team at a national level. Paul Webster was my master coach during that whole system. And Paul is now the curling director with, with uh, the Glencoe club. He's also uh, huge in the development side um, as far as coaching goes in Canada. And uh, Paul approached me and said, you know, you need to get this part of this done at a national level. And he says, I got a team that, that's really looking for a coach of a higher standard because they've been to a couple of nationals and they haven't really cracked the nut. So they introduced me, and it just so happened that there were uh, a group of wheelchair curlers, uh, Jack Smart, Bruno Yizik, um, you know, Ann Hibbert, and, and they were they were great. Uh, Bridget Wilson was part of that group, and they really just welcomed me with open arms. And I told them, I don't have any curling background in a wheelchair, but I've got tons of curling background. So I taught them the curling, and they taught me the parasite of the sport. And we worked together for three, three and a half years, uh, it was a great relationship, uh, and it really kind of exposed me to the fact that whether you were an able-bodied curler or whether you're a wheelchair curler, we all have our limitations. We all have what we're really good at. And we all have the things that are challenging us, and, and it really just made me appreciate that I'm dealing with athletes first and foremost. It didn't matter you know, what they look like, what their size or shape was, if they were able-bodied or not. You're dealing with athletes, and athletes have goals and ambitions. And as a coach, all you want to do is get the best out of those athletes. So gave me a little bit of a different perspective on on coaching. Um, and it really gave me an opportunity, again, to kind of get in there and expand my coaching skills and horizons. So that kind of was how I got into that side of things. Um, and then from there, it just kind of blossomed to the back of 2010 um, after the Olympics. My boss at the Glencoe Club came to me and he said, you know, there's going to be some opportunities going into the next cycle. And he said, keep your ear to the ground and see what comes up. And um, lo and behold, British Curling at that time, they were making some some changes off of the back of Vancouver and they were looking for three coaches. And, and I put my, my hat in the ring and I was very fortunate again to get offered an opportunity. Yeah, so... So then you moved to, 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 I guess, Sterling, right, for to coach with the national wheelchair team there. And so uh, what did that role entail over that, over that four-year cycle? Yeah, so coming into to that team was, again, I was, I was really blessed in coming in because that's some really dedicated athletes. And Sheila Swan had been coaching them the previous year. Um, they, they didn't have a really good track record coming off of the back of, off of, the, back of the Olympics, uh, Paralympics in Vancouver. Um, and they didn't really have a full-time coach. And then Sheila was asked to do it, and she, and she was working for Scottish Curling at the time. And she took the, the role on and took them to the World Championships, and they were just footloose and fancy-free. And, and Sheila had a really great attitude she brought to the team, and it was a good atmosphere. And they went in there, and they smashed a medal. And that qualified them basically just on that one performance. So for me coming in, knowing that that team was already 
probably going to have enough points to go to the Paralympics kind of gave me carte blanche a little bit. And when we went outside the box a little bit and we, we utilized the 18 inch rule, um, the wheelchair curling rule off the center line. And, and we did a lot of different and what I felt were really innovative things. And, you know, we took a slow burn process to it. We didn't have a whole bunch of success early, but by the time we got to the year of the, of the Paralympics, uh, we played, I think, seven, eight events. We qualified in every one. I think we only missed one final. Um, and again, we had the likes of Aileen Nielsen. We had Tom Killen in there. We had Jim Galt, Gregor Ewan. We had Robert McPherson. We had Angie Malone. We just had some really dedicated athletes who really knew what they wanted to do, and we all bought into the system. Then by the time we were getting ready to get on that plane to go to, to Sochi for the Paralympics, we had a lot of success in that final year. So we knew that we could get the job done. Um, and, and it was a lot of fun because that was probably a highlight of mine um, that you kind of dream about and to be able to sit there on the bench watching the athletes you've kind of been in bed with for those three years, you know, living out their dream in that bronze medal game against China was uh, and, and winning was, was pretty exciting. Oh, cool. So you mentioned something that, that I hadn't known because I guess I don't, uh, I don't play or coach wheelchair curling. You mentioned this 18-inch rule. So is that the delivery zone in wheelchair curling or – it is. So you've got those two lines that are opposite side of the, the center line. And what you're allowed to do is you're allowed to move the stone anywhere within that region. So basically you've got 36 inches to move the stone. And my belief was that was allowing us to attack slightly different angles, depending on where you place that stone. And again, from a sciencey point of view, it really worked out. It totally changed perspectives of the curlers. And again, it was a real slow burn. It was a real long learning process. And we were one of the few teams to use it to, to that extent. And I think now you'll still see some teams using it to a certain level, but definitely nobody's using it to the level that um, I and, and, and the team that I was a part of at that time were using it. And I don't know if you ever will again, but I thought it was always an advantage for us. And, um, you know, even for a short window of time, I think it did pay dividends for us. Oh, cool. So that kind of raises an interesting question because I think that the obvious difference between wheelchair curlers and able-bodied curlers would be the delivery and the lack of sweeping. But are there other differences that kind of came up with coaching in terms of like what you had to approach when you when you took on that role or the different tra- challenges those ty- the wheelchair teams uh, can face? Probably a lot of things that until you're in that environment, you don't really even think about. So, for example, you're, you're sitting, you know, 24 inches above an ice cube that's massive for two and a half hours at a time. So, you know, just trying to keep athletes engaged because they get cold and then they're not in, focused on what they're supposed to be doing. So, the, I mean, that's a challenge that an able-bodied curler never experiences because nobody's ever cold out there except maybe the odd skip. So, you know, just learning those types of things, I think, again, understanding that most of them don't have a performance sport background. A lot of the athletes I was working with didn't come from a sport background. They came from a working background. They had an injury and they actually then migrated to sport as an opportunity again to get them back into the real world. But they hadn't been athletes for 15, 20 years going to an Olympics at you know, 25, 26, 30 years old. So again, it's a different mindset. So you've got to learn to adapt and what your level of expectations are maybe need to change a little bit. And again, you talked about the sweeping thing, you know, 65, 70% is uh, for a wheelchair curler is just the same as curling, you know, 95, 
98% for, for an able-bodied curler, it makes that big a difference. So the shot selection that you look at calling, in my belief, does need to change because you're never going to have wheelchair curlers going out there playing 80, 85%. So why are you throwing that degree of difficulty shot when you're, when you can't pull it off? So yeah, I, th- I think ultimately the, my mindset had to change. The athletes I were working with helped me change that. And I think at the same time, I was able to hopefully bring some high performance attitudes back to those athletes. Yeah. So what, like what's similar then, like both from a coaching perspective, but also kind of at an athlete performance perspective between wheelchair and able-bodied curlers? They absolutely are focused on doing the absolute best that they can. And their challenges are no different than the able-bodied people's challenges. Um, And you can't, you can't feel sorry for them. You can't allow yourself to um, not push them because they want to be pushed. They want to be challenged. So I think in in a similar way, it is literally trying to, find the right motivation to keep them going day in, day out, day in, day out, and not looking at them as um, people who can't do things, looking at them as individuals who have goals and aspirations, and how as a coach can we help them do that? No different than we do you know, potentially like an even your head who's just gone through a hip surgery. You know, she still has goals she wants to accomplish, and you know those people are still going to have to be around her helping her rehab and, and getting her back into playing shape. And that might mean tweaking her delivery a little bit if she can't do some of the same things that she wasn't allowed to do previously. I think every athlete hopes that when they come back, they're actually better so they can do more things. But that's going to be a learning process for Eve and for the people around her too. So, um, you know, it really is just dealing with people, their goals and aspirations and, and listening to them, being being compassionate and, and focused on what it is they're trying to get out of themselves. Yeah, that's great. So you made this really interesting transition then from wheelchair, head of wheelchair coaching to national coach for for British curling right after the 2014 Olympics. So how did that come about? And uh, how how easily did the skills you picked up being a national coach for wheelchair curling transition into being the national coach for the head of coaching for, for British curling? Yeah, I'm glad you said head of coaching because I, I think there are very different roles. I think as a head coach, that that is different than a head of coaching. My initial role going in as head of coaching was actually to do very little team coaching and do more upskilling and education and working with coaches and, and trying to implement systems and, and create, um, you know, profiling tools and doing selection work and that was the big remit of the job right up front so i think again those skills were quite easy for me to learn coming from the para program because a lot of those are what i did actually back at the glencoe and in my early development years as a coach working with able-bodied i only had about five years experience in the para program so i actually had more able-bodied experience once i was asked to take the role of head of coaching now, again, those two cycles look very different. In the, in the Sochi cycle, we had three defined coaches with three defined programs. Rona Martin was running the women's, Soren Gran was running the men's, and I was running wheelchair. And we were a collaborative unit. We shared a lot of ideas. We worked together, but nobody really oversaw us. Dave Crosby was, was PD at the time, and Dave gave each of us ample opportunity to kind of set our own course and, and drive our own ships create our own destinies and then support us when he needed to. But going into the next cycle, um, 
of the powers that be had decided that they wanted to make a little bit of a change. They wanted to go down a head of coaching role and not have so many individual program coaches in men's, women's, and wheelchair, but have more team coaches. So they made that decision. And again, I applied for the job and went through the interview process. New PD came in at that time, Graham Thompson, and he was architectural in putting his program together. He was the one that, um, you know, that, that interviewed me along with Mike Whittingham and they made the decision to go that way. So I, I, I definitely loved that role. I loved how it was written up. If there's a, a difference going through the cycle, is that what it was at the end of the four years wasn't what it started out to be. So fundamentally, the job changed. And once the job changed, then my role had to change. Okay, so so that kind of raises a couple interesting questions. So one, it seems like not only is kind of coaching evolving a lot over the, over, I think primarily driven by the Olympics, the high performance level, obviously, but it also seems like a lot of national governing bodies are still trying to figure out how they want to structure themselves. Do you think that's definitely the case, not just with British curling, but with kind of many of the other national programs around the world? Yeah, I would think that, you know, we had some success again coming off the back of Sochi. You got to remember the British program had three medals. All three programs brought medals home and there was only one other nation that did that and that was Canada. So we were very, very fortunate to come back from Sochi with three medals and, you know, being a coach in that system, well, that was great. I knew that there were still things percolating below the surface that needed to be addressed going into the next cycle. Um, so again, you're talking about funding partners that, that are now involved with UK Sport. And, you know, it's, they have every right to be involved in your process because they're the ones that are actually funding your programs to the tune of, you know, four or five, six million pounds over a four-year journey. So when your investors putting that kind of money in, they want to have a little bit of say in, in kind of what that looks like. So I do think that the Olympics and funding and funding partners and organizations are having a huge impact on how different countries are going to be looking at how they staff and how they structure their organizations. And the bigger an organization gets, the more athletes that come into a system, the more money you need to be able to resource them. And that's the S and C and physio and ice time and coaches. It's a real big juggernaut. So the bigger your program gets, the more resource you need. And if the program just grows with people and you don't grow with the resources, then you get stretched. And ultimately that's kind of what happened. Last night we didn't have enough on the ground coaches. We had great coaches who were involved, but we had a lot of coaches that weren't based here in Scotland and they're doing a lot of contract work from, from Canada and from other places. And, you know, that meant I had to pick up a lot of that extra slack and I did a lot of team coaching towards the end of that cycle, which again, wasn't necessarily part of the original remit. So that's why I said my role kind of changed and morphed as we went through the cycle. So by the, so initially the idea is you would manage most of the coaching and the infrastructure, but then by the end, you simply had to be involved with the teams just because of the size and scale of the program and how it, how it grew over the cycle then? Is that what you're yeah, exactly. So when you looked at, you know, who had ended up coming in as coaches, we ended up having Ian Tedley in coaching Dave Murdoch. We had Mike Harris coaching team Tom Brewster. We had uh, Glenn Howard coaching uh, Eve Muirhead. All three of those are Canadians who all have full-time responsibilities back in Canada. So while they were on the ground at championships or at events, they definitely weren't on the ground here doing the day-to-day -day coaching. And that you need to do that day-to-day -day work and the technical work. And that's ultimately what I ended up doing for all three of those teams. So two years out from the games, I was basically doing day-to-day on-ice delivery for three teams, two men's team, a women's team. Um, 
And then again, when you're doing that, you're doing far less management. You're doing far less of the the day-to-day structural stuff of coaching coaches, working in the integrated model, working with S&C and physio. And and that's not a bad thing. It's just it's the the necessary evil that you have to do when you don't have those day-to-day touches with those other coaches and their athletes. So ultimately, that's what caused the, the role to change. Um, and then by the, the start of the, the next bit, we had Kyle, um, Kyle Smith's coach w- was Victor Shell, and he moved over from Canada and he worked very closely with Kyle. And that's probably one of the reasons that Kyle ended up coming through in the end, because they did have the day to day touches um, on a consistent basis, whereas I was being split between two or three teams. Victor was fully immersed with Team Smith, and um, they got to form a really good relationship, a really good bond, and they got the support services around them the way they needed to. Um, had a really good Europeans just before the Olympics, and um, you know, again, that breeds a lot of confidence. And you don't have one bad end against the cruise. Who knows? Maybe we have two teams in, uh, you know, playing for a bronze medal. Um, you so you were also running the mixed doubles program as well, then, right? As, so you had to run mixed doubles. Uh, men's, women's, and wheelchair curling all under this role, or was wheelchair curling hived off? Wheelchair curling was direct report to Graham Thompson, the PD. So Sheila went directly to Graham, um, and that was right from day one. And I think that was the absolute right thing to do there. I think that, again, the remit from my perspective with men's, women's, and mixed doubles was was big enough in itself. And Sheila would basically have autonomy in the wheelchair program very much like I did um, when I came into that role. So that was the absolute right thing to do. And yes, I did end up uh, spending a fair amount of time doing some mixed double stuff. Again, we had some great coaches doing the, the real day-to-day work there. David Aiken working with Bruce and Gina um, did a great job with them. And, you know, I was, I was out there with them for two championships over three years. And that was at that final championship where I ended up missing out by one point of qualifying for the Olympics, which was actually gutting for Bruce and Gina. Um, they were all class to, to, to be that age and manage it the way they did was incredible. And I think again, both of those athletes, uh, you know, Gina now going mixed doubles with, uh, with Scott Andrews and with Bruce having success he's had with his own team in men's, I think it just goes to show to their character and um, they're going to be forces to be reckoned with for, for years to come. So it's it kind of like one way of uh, like reading the two Olympic cycles, the, the 2014 and the 2018 cycle is that in a certain sense, G, uh, team GB did really well in 2014 and, and with three medals, as you said, but no medals this time. But another way of reading it is they, they kept the, maybe the, the breaks uh, went all of GB's way in 2014 and not so much in 2018, right? If Dave Murdoch doesn't make that run back double, if Eve just misses out by one game in the round robin, then the results could have been kind of basically the same both times. So how much of it do you think is luck for, versus how much of it is kind of the, the time, the effort, the energy and the skill over the whole four year cycle in terms of the results you see at the end on the podium? Yeah, I think one of the things we've always talked about is that at that top end level, it's about making the right shot at the right time. And it's not about um, it's not about the shots you make. It's about the ones that you don't make that actually the mistakes that come back to bite you in the back end. So a lot of it does come down at that level to one shot here, one shot there. I think that one of the things we've tried to do is really look at what does it take to win a curling game? And, and, you know, British curling now has a really defined what it takes to win model. And I think it's a great model. I think that it, it is about, you know, the best teams in the world are always there for one reason or another. And I think if you look at the Canadian teams, yeah, they, they got 
you know, a, a little bit of a blip on the radar at this last Olympics with, with the two men's and women's teams not doing so well, um, you know, being pulled through by John and Caitlin with mixed doubles. I, I think that's an anomaly. I think that the best teams in the world consistently win at the top end. And, you know, if you, if you played that out again, you would have, you know, Canada on the, on the podium for sure on men's and women's. So I think for me, they just make the fewest mistakes they call the smartest game. They, they know when they need to score. They know when they don't need to score. And I think that's one of the things that, you know, our, our teams in, in Great Britain are starting to get better at is recognizing that you don't have to have your foot on the pedal all the time. And now you're playing five rock rule. You know, what that is for me is an equalizer because you're actually now going to be the first time in the sport where more teams will be playing the game who have no experience playing it than the teams who have experience playing it. And I think that's going to bring in a whole new um, mindset. And, and a lot of these teams who haven't played it before are going to bring some new strategies to the table, some new ideas to the table, because there, there's more of them. And I think that some of those are going to actually play out and then show through. And it'll be interesting to see how the game evolves with Five Rock. And, you know, these young athletes coming through the system are really going to be driving some of that. So you, you mentioned that Team GB has a model for what it takes to win a curling game. Can you share that or is that kind of top secret proprietary? Uh, no, it's not top secret. And I don't think any country has a top secret proprietary model. It literally breaks down to what is your technical execution? What is your tactical nuance? And then how do your team dynamics work? So it really comes down to three areas, team, technical and tactical and at what point are you proficient enough in all three of those to actually go out there and consistently perform day in day out you can't just be good technically because if you call in the wrong shots and it doesn't matter you can play 85 90 percent game in game out and i was at championships with teams that did that and we still finished seventh place and the reason we finished seventh place is because we didn't take the right risk at the right time now you got other teams that go out there and call all the right shots, but they only curl 60, 65%. So now again, you're finishing seventh all the time. And then you got teams that call the right game and they actually play quite well, but they've got no team chemistry. They got no dynamics. They're constantly fighting. And I think back to like Kevin and John in the first two years of their, of their run together, they were always at each other, but once it started to go good, they were buddy buddy and the best buddies they got the better they started to play so how you get along and how you communicate is a huge part of that you can't just have one or two of those t's clicking you have to have all three now what goes below those three things yeah that becomes proprietary to each country on how they want to manage that and how they use their support services to to help support that whether it's snc physio psych support technical coaches tactical coaches but i think any country is literally looking to get the best performance in each of those three areas they can, team, technical, and tactical. Yeah, okay, that's great. So that, that can going to try and transition to some questions about your kind of coaching philosophy and some of the bigger questions about uh, your approach to coaching. So what, what do you think the role of a curling coach is? Yeah, so again, when I was a young coach, I, I thought a coaching philosophy had to be a big, long, wordy thing because it made you sound really smart and you had a whole bunch of ideas. And over the years, I've just kept paring it down, paring it down, paring it down. So right now, my coaching philosophy is I influence behaviors that affect performance. That's all I can do as a coach. So how do you influence behaviors to affect performance? You create relationships. Some of those are touchy-feely relationships. Some of those are hard-nosed relationships. Some of those are inquisitive. Some of those are demanding. Some of those are more pointed. But the ultimate thing is, is how do you get an athlete to change a behavior um, that you believe needs to be changed? 
because if they don't believe it, they're probably not going to want to change it. So, you know, again, it's about, you know, one of my mentor coaches always said they don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. So I'm not a touchy feely coach by any stretch of the imagination. A lot of athletes I've coached might say I'm, you know, I'm a little standoffish. I'm a little aloof. I'm not really there with them, but those I've been in battle with, I think will, you know, they would say, I do have a caring side from an athlete's point of view, because if I don't, then they're not going to buy into kind of what I'm trying to get them to do, but they've got to want to make that change. I'm not doing it for me. I'm doing it for them because if they don't perform, then, then I don't perform. So it's definitely a two-way street. It's not all about one or the other. But again, influencing behaviors and affecting performance, for me, that's literally all we can do as a coach and, and creating relationships is, is how we do that. So let's just flip it around and think of it from the athlete's perspective. What do you think makes an athlete coachable? Uh, the, the drive to get better every day, um, the ability to challenge themselves every day and recognize that, um, no matter what they did yesterday, it doesn't matter anymore because that was yesterday. There's always an athlete doing more than they're doing right now because generally the people below you need to do more than you do to go past you. So as soon as you start resting on your laurels, you're, you're going to be gained upon. So for me, a coachable athlete is somebody who's inquisitive. They're asking questions. They're trying to find out different ways to do things. They're putting in the extra time. They're putting in the extra effort. They're not doing the same thing every day. And they have a, an understanding of what it is as coaches we're trying to help them do. Um, and that doesn't mean they have to do everything we want them to, but they need to be bought into that forming the, the, the plan to move forward. So they have to have bought into that by taking the ownership of learning and understanding and knowledge sharing. One of the things I do all the time is I ask the athlete, what did that feel like? What did that look like? We're using video. I'm teaching them. I'm not telling them. I I want them to learn so that when they're out there in the heat of battle, they can self-correct because that for me is, is the defining moment that I've done my job. When an athlete maybe isn't sliding great, you know, two or three keywords from a teammate gets them sliding better or make a couple of tactical calls wrong. They get a little bit of a keyword from, an, from another teammate and they're kind of back in the zone. Those are the things that coaches are really designed or should be being designed to do is, is create those learning opportunities so the athletes can walk themselves through it. So how has the coaching profession changed with curling entering the Olympics? I think, again, you've got countries that they're, they're just not going there to compete. They're going there to win. And, you know, the pressure goes up because of that. So the, the, the amount of pressure on the coach goes up. The amount of pressure on the athlete goes up. The amount of pressure on the entire system goes up. So you've now got coaches um, that you need a balance of experience. Um, I've got a lot of uh, experience, been there, done that as a coach, but I've never been there, done that as an athlete. And I think that that goes a little bit of a ways to, to understanding how these athletes think. So it's it's been quite common for a long time to have athletes at the end of their journey move into coaching. So they've kind of got that been there, done that experience. And I think that's important. But what you can't lose is you also need that understanding of coaching and skill development and progression and how does S&C fit and how does physio fit and how do you tailor a training plan and how do you taper and all those other things. So I think there's a real balance. And I think now you're probably going to see more of that balance coming through because you're not just going to have the old school and you're not just going to have the new school. 
you're going to have athletes now who are only going to get to go four, six, eight years because it's so hard out there on tour and you're going so hard. You're away from your family so much and you, you're, you're having to work part-time jobs. I think you're going to see coaches do a little bit like what Dave Murdoch has done, transition into coaching earlier and then start to back that up some education. So you actually got the real world experience, but then you get the educational side of it too. And I think that's really important because that'll give you the best of both worlds. Yeah, so you, so you see a lot more kind of, I guess, professional coaches coming out of the professional rank then? Or is it going to be kind of people who've taken more your path who are uh, perhaps not, weren't like kind of high level as players, but spent a lot of time building up their skill sets uh, over kind of a decade or two decades before they're able to be an elite coach? Well, it's interesting because I think that that's kind of dependent on the country a little bit. And the reason I say that is because if you look at ice hockey, um, you know, there's very few ice hockey coaches in, in all of the sport who are really high level players. Most of them are really good hockey players, but maybe not played in the NHL, maybe not played at the very top end. And I'm not saying it's exclusive to the NHL, but you see a lot more journeyman hockey players who went on to have very successful coaching careers but it's been around for a long time. Coaching and curling is still very, very new. You don't have a lot of JD Linz out there who have, you know, got into it very, very young and looked at it as a career, you know, same as myself. I've been chasing the dream as a coach as long as most athletes have been chasing as an athlete. So I think we're still in a transition period. And you're going to see a little bit of both. Hopefully coaching itself and curling grows into a professional role that's recognized as a professional role. And I would love to see organizations like the WCF or Grand Slam Curling allow coaches to be more involved in the day-to-day -day of the game because in what other sport is the coach so hamstrung as we are in curling? We literally get five minutes at the, at the fifth end break. They go out there and, and that's really it. So um, I, I think there's a ways that we can go to actually allow coaching to have an impact on the players without having a negative impact on the game. And I think that will give coaching a, a higher profile and more credibility as an actual profession. Yeah, so that, that kind of raises an interesting question about some of the key differences between curling coaching and coaching in other team sports, at least, right? So one of the big, let's say, ongoing debates, at least since like the, the original Olympics in 1988 with uh, the Battle of the Balls with Ed Wernick and uh, Team Canada's, uh, Curling Canada's Paul kind Savage, of experiments yeah. at the time. And Paul Savage, right? Was one of the things that Curling Canada tried back then was self-formed teams in the Olympic trials. And we've also seen, sorry, a T, sorry, coach-formed teams or organization-formed teams in the Olympic yeah. trials. And we've also seen in the U.S., a move in the last cycle to mostly coach form teams with with one obvious exception. And then with British curling, there's kind of been, a, I guess, a back and forth debate over whether to go with more of a coach formed or organization formed team approach versus a, a self formed or team or athlete formed team. So like, what's your philosophy about that? I think, again, it comes down to what is acceptable in your region of the world, because you know, the psyche of the athlete is, is a huge part of that. If you looked at, uh, let's say, any of the Asian countries, they're very, very adept to taking um, four people and being put in a task and accomplishing that task because they're all there for the greater good. So I don't know how much say they have, but again, talking to some of the coaches in that area, they're very much coach-led. They're put together and they recognize that that's the best opportunity they're going to have. 
would that work in Canada? Would that work, you know, where you've got a million curlers and you've got so many good players spread out? I don't think so because it, it doesn't work that same way. And I don't know that wholeheartedly that would work in Scotland because you're, you're now fundamentally changing the belief of those people because if the athletes don't buy into it, that system's not going to work. And I think, you know, again, the Wernick Savage thing kind of proved that out a wee bit is that you can't just take four players, throw them together and say, you guys are going to be a great team. You, if you can convince four players to join up and make a good team, that's, that's one way of doing it. But you can't take people with philosophical differences, throw them in a room and expect them to live harmoniously together. I just don't think that works. So I guess, do you mind filling us in a little bit? Because I think in terms of like the coverage of British curling, it's it's gotten a bit of a reputation over the last eight eight to 10 years as perhaps drifting towards the coach coach form team. Well, I think part of that has to do with the lineup shuffles with, with Murdoch's team in 2014 and the news coverage around that. But you, you mind just explaining what British curling's official policy is or was or has it changed uh, over the years or... Well, again, I've been involved in two cycles, and then all I can really talk to is those two cycles. In that first year, um, we basically, uh, in that first cycle, you know, Soren Gron had a, a definite plan in his head of how he wanted his men's teams to look. Obviously, the men's teams were deeper than the women's teams, um, so Rona took a slightly different approach with hers. Um, you know, and the fact that I was involved in, in both of those programs as far as going through selections and meetings and stuff, I can say hand on heart that. We never told players who fundamentally didn't like one another that they had to play together. That, that, that just never happened. You know, obviously Dave Murdoch, um, you know, was probably looking for a place to play, you know, right off the back of Vancouver. Um, the next year, I think he played with Glenn Muirhead and, and a couple other players. And, you know, Dave was, was still kind of the guy to go to around here. And he really didn't have a strong team in front of him. Um, he had gone through a shoulder surgery. Um, so he, he was brought in as a fifth player and then Soren was big on five player teams. So again, he encouraged all his teams to be five players. Um, Tom Brewster had very big success with the, the players he had had at that time. And, you know, to bring Dave in, I don't think anybody thought that was going to fundamentally be a detriment to a team that was already going strong. Um, you know, ultimately the way things played out, Tom ended up on the bench and Dave ended up skipping it. And, you know, again, they still got a silver medal at the Olympics. So you could maybe knock it if you want, but, at the end of the day, programs designed to put medals on the table, and, and they did that. Um, so in, with this cycle, every team that's out there right now is self-formed. Um, you know, coaches will talk to players. Coaches will, you know, what I talked about, influencing behaviors, affecting performance. Nobody out there is doing it 100% on their own. I don't know any teams have been, you know, strong-armed into playing with people they fundamentally don't want to play with. Um, you know, Hammy McMillan had some choices to make a couple years ago. Um, you know, he made a personal choice to go with three real good friends of his as opposed to sticking with a more experienced player in Ross Patterson. And I think that's probably played out really well for Hammy. Um, you know, he's played very well on that team. He's, he's grown into a leadership role on a, on a fairly new team. Um, and Ross Patterson's now moved into skipping his own team. Um, so I think, again, you're dealing with a country that's got, you know, a handful, you know, when you look at the grand scheme of things, 15, 20 really world-class type curlers, um, you kind of got to let them pick and choose a little bit. I don't know that you could go in there and absolutely form a team and, and have success in a four-year period. Um, at least that's my take on it. Yeah. So that, that kind of raises another interesting question. So you're, you kind of talked that it's different from country to country or culture to culture. 
So do you think that this means that there's, we're also going to kind of see a change in terms of how coaching is done across countries and cultures or different approaches to high performance co uh, coaching? Like, is it going to be different in Japan than, sorry, is it going to be different in Japan than, say, in Europe than in Canada? Or Well, I think as a coach going into any system, you need to fundamentally have a grasp on what that system wants to accomplish and what their, you know, philosophy and, and vision, mission, values is going in because – um, if you're not aligned with them, you know, that that's just going to be a recipe for disaster. So um, any coach going into any one of those countries or organizations, however you want to describe them, you know, they need to know exactly what it is they're walking into and, and what that philosophy of that country is. Or are they going in and getting a carte blanche? You sit down, you create the culture, you create the, the program. Um, and again, I, I've been in that boat when I came over with uh, with the Paralympic team. Um you know, that, that's a pretty tall order um, to, to come in and, you know, bring something that only you know into a culture that you don't know will appreciate or accept that. And, you know, again, we got an outcome, but it's probably not a sustainable outcome the way I was coaching or managing that group of athletes for another four years because, you know, you kind of you, – you go through a, a learning curve and then you kind of hit your pinnacle and you, you do what you've done but then it's not sustainable. So then you need to adapt again. So I think as a coach, you just need to be really, really aware of your surroundings going into any environment and, and know who's really driving the culture, driving the mission, vision, values of the organization and make sure you're aligned with that. Because if you are, there's nothing but good things that can happen. But if you're not aligned with what the organization's values are, then eventually, you know, it's going to come to a head and somebody's going to lose. And the problem is when, when you lose as a coach, that means athletes have lost too um, because you're not being the best influence you can on their performance or they're, they're part of the journey. And that's really what we're all there for is the athlete's journey. Uh, it kind of opens up another question here is that we've seen since the end of the cycle, we've seen a couple of the big programs, like actually medal winning programs make cuts. So it sounds like Adine's funding was cut at least for this year. And it looks like going off press reports, Korea is also cut back significantly since they're not hosting the Olympics, I assume. And, well, they're not hosting in 2022, but I assume part of the funding for curling was because they were hosting before. So is that kind of cutback in funding affecting the coaching job market globally? Are we seeing fewer kind of national head coach jobs out there? Or, or do you think the, the growth in the game is so much there's going to be a lot more coaching opportunities over the next four years? Well, I think that in it, you have to be aware of where the opportunities are coming from within a four-year cycle. I think, you know, going from back-to-back, -back, you know, going from Beijing or Beijing in 22, going back to Pyeongchang in, in 18, you know, to have Japan and uh, Korea both medal um, in 18, China is definitely not going to want to um, – not have their best foot forward going into 22. So they're going to be doing everything they can with athletes and coaches and resources to make sure that they put their best foot forward, not just in curling, but in everything they do when they host. That's just the nature of hosting an Olympics. So yeah, you're going to have huge opportunities in certain areas of the country and you're going to have opportunities in other parts of the, of the world that are, are going to go sideways just because, again, they, they've cut back on funding. So, you know, I think Russia's cut back post-Sochi, and I think that's shown in, in their performances over the last four or five, six years. Um, and I think, again, you're going to see that from Korea because you can't sustain it at that top end unless you've got unlimited resources to do that. And 
I don't think anybody's got unlimited resources. So you need to manage your resources the best you can and be really realistic in what your goal options are. Because just because you want to chase three medals doesn't mean you have the resources, both manpower, ice time, facilities, um, coaches to be able to chase a men's, women's and a mixed double. So maybe the smaller nations need to focus more on one or two medal opportunities instead of three. And when you're talking about the big nations like the, the GBs and the Canadas and you know some of the larger um, Scandinavian countries, you still have to make sure you stretch those dollars over four years. So it doesn't surprise me that a Sweden's going to maybe pull back that first year um, and then start to ramp it up again in years two, three, and four. Um, I think in Nicholas's case, um, I don't think it's going to slow them down. I think that they made enough money and he can probably find enough sponsorship that he'll be able to, to maybe not miss a whole bunch of a trick, but it's always nice to know that the money's sitting there and, if your Olympic Association has got the funds, great, but the money is getting tight all over and it has to affect the jobs. For sure it does, but that's just the nature of any industry. And if you want to keep growing, then you need to be flexible on where you go or what you do or what nations you work for and you know, make sure you're taking advantage of the opportunities that present themselves. So Ryan sent in a message. He couldn't make us uh, the interview today just because of work commitments, but he, I asked him if he had any questions. The one he was really dying to ask you was about allowing coaches at ice level and WCF events. So I guess they're trying this with the World Cup of curling, but it might be kind of in the cards for championship events in the near future. So what do you think about ice level coaching? And also, if you were in charge of WCF rules and regulations, what rule changes would you make uh, from a coaching perspective? Yeah, I think growing up in Canada, we've always been pretty lenient with having coaches down um, – as close to the ice or on the ice level as possible with Briars and Scotties and stuff and allowing athlete coach communication, you know, between each end, um, not during the ends. And, and I'm cool with that. I think that again, as a coach, what you're trying to do is influence behaviors again. So once an end is over, that's probably the freshest time to be able to, to go back and talk about a shot that happened or a call that was made, or even just reiterate, you know, that was a really straight spot over there. Make sure you log that for later in the game or, you know, the building's emptying out, watch for frost. I mean, whatever it is, I'm really big on getting the coaches close to the ice and, and, and not hamstringing them too much, allow communication to go on. Um, and you know what, even if it was going on between the ends, as long as it was not about shots being called, um, then I'm okay with that. And I would even like to see timeouts be almost unlimited because, but your clock always runs. So you know, right now, is if you take a coach interaction, your clock keeps running. That's going to be self-policed because you, you can't take unlimited amount of timeouts, even though you'd almost make them unlimited because your, your clock is never going to allow you to do that. So um, I think that, yeah, I'd love to see more interaction and, and get the coaches right down there on the surface. And I think the World Cup of Curling is going to be awesome for allowing us to experiment. And I think the slams have done the same thing. I, I think we just need to keep looking at how do you make the game more interesting for the fans, for the curlers, and for the coaches. Okay, great. So my last question here is kind of asking for advice for, for our listeners. So if uh, someone listening to this wants to get into performance, high-performance coaching or professional coaching, uh, like what advice would you have for them uh, to kind of stake out that kind of a career path? Uh, do it because you love it. Uh, same as I would tell an athlete who wants to get involved in sport. Don't don't go into it looking like you're going to make a million dollars and you're going to retire on a beach someplace. Get into it because you love doing it. 
I, I love the sport of curling. I also loved coaching. I used to sit up and, and watch Hockey Night in Canada with my dad as a little guy on the couch. And I was fascinated watching the Scotty Bowmans and, you know, watching NFL football and, and watching some of those personalities and the Tom Landry's and, you know, Mike Keenan's and the coaches always really made an impression on me. And, and I allowed that influencing to kind of help steer me as to what I wanted to do. Just like an athlete watches, you know, Usain Bolt run a hundred meters and zero flat and they want to become a runner. So do it because you love it. Don't do it because of what you think is going to be at the end. But then once you get into it, treat it like a job, treat it like a profession, whether or not you're working with a six-year-old, whether you're working with 16-year-olds or working, working with 26-year-olds, because yeah, I think they will really appreciate it. And for me, that's what really matters is the appreciation back from the athletes. It's not always the organizational appreciation that keeps a coach going. It's those little moments in time where you see an athlete actually hit something that they've been trying to do for ages and ages and ages, and they do it. And they just share that moment with you with a look, um, with a touch on the shoulder, whatever it is. Those are the moments that are really defining for me as a coach. And those are what keep me motivated to keep coaching. Okay. Thanks. Thanks a lot, Tony. I think you've given us like a lot of uh, insights into both how high performance coaching operates and kind of tips and insights into uh, coaching at the grassroots level. So I'm just wondering if there's anything else that you want to say uh, just before we wrap things up here. No, thanks a lot. This has been an awesome opportunity. Thanks for, for having me on and, and all the best in your, in your podcast for the future. Thanks, Jonathan. All right. Cheers. Thanks a lot, Tony. Hi, Jonathan. Thank you for taking the time to talk to Tony. Um, a lot of a lot of good stuff in there. Do we know what Tony's doing next other than traveling the world? I don't think you have to really worry about elite level coaches like like Tony. It's 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 a lot like elite level coaches in any other sport. I think you kind of as he said in the interview, there's a natural like shelf life to these gigs and then it's just the kind of career where you have to be used to moving from place to place and opportunity to opportunity. So he will land on his feet. So he he talked a lot about if you're if you're gonna do this, if you're gonna gonna get into coaching curling, to do it for the love of the game. Um, so as you put on your professor of peel hat here, um, you know when you're when you're getting started and you decide to become a coach, first of all, just how can coaching help at the grassroots level with people who are just getting started in the sport um, and people who are you know beginning to improve uh, in their in their first couple of years? What role can coaching play? at at curling individual curling clubs uh, around the world so i think coaching's really important for recruitment and development uh especially at the adult level i think that's one place where all kinds of clubs fall down a fair bit like a, a lot of other sports if you were playing golf or tennis which are two kind of typical adult pickup sports a bit like a bit like curling you'd have a club pro or tennis pro or a golf pro and not many rinks and not many clubs have that kind of a person on staff, but uh, I think that a lot of kind of more forward-looking clubs now are building in things like learn to curl sessions, learn to curl better sessions. And so getting at least some volunteer coach force at your club uh, to put on those kinds of sessions is really key for moving people from kind of a try curling sessions where they come and give it a go for one day to providing them perhaps a bit of structured learning over a few weeks so they can join a league to running novice or development leagues to help beginners kind of feel confident enough to join a regular league. And then also putting on events for more experienced curlers to uh, 
uh, improve their game so they kind of stick around curling and get a bit better and, and uh, keep doing it. And so when when we're talking about coaching, there's kind of there's a difference between I guess what we would call in the U.S. the instructor level, uh, which is you know teaching people this game who who are coming to it uh, for the first time. So there's a difference between that and I guess coaching, right? Where you're focusing on improving a team, helping team dynamics, and helping a team perform, right? In a certain sense, yeah. I th- but I, th- I think. I've, I've actually done coaching certifications in Canada, the U.S., and Scotland. All three have a pretty similar coaching pyramid. So normally level one teaches, regardless of the country system, teaches people the basic skills to teach a basic curling delivery. So that's basically novice instruction. Level two is a bit more technical, how to correct delivery faults, um, a bit more tech, a bit more kind of on basic tactics. And then level three and up tends to be more of the high performance side thing, like competition dynamics, team formation, uh, event management. Level four is is basically the equivalent of doing a PhD in coaching. You have to develop okay. your own material and uh, demonstrate that you're actually coaching coaches. So that's kind of the rough kind of pyramid structure. Um, I I I actually think that. Uh, like all of those demands for coaching are kind of still the same thing. So I, I still like this weekend I had to take two brand new novices showed up as we were running our learn to curl. And so I pulled them over and I did their basically did an impromptu one hour. These are the basics of curling because most of the other things were set up for more advanced skills. So even though I'm coaching an international team at the junior level, I'm also quite comfortable going back and coaching novice, you know, novice people, basic, basic setup and stuff. So it's not like it's a completely different skill set. So if you're just getting started, if you've, you know, been curling for a few years and you decide, you know, I want to help grow this sport and you decide to get into coaching or instruction or what have you, how do you if you're trying to get people to help curl better and maybe not necessarily learning how to curl and you've gone through and you've gone through these instructor courses, how do you then come back to your curling club and convince your peers, people who have probably maybe been curling the same amount of time as you or who have been curling uh, a lot longer than you have? How do you come back to your club and convince them that you know what you're doing when in terms of actual curling ability, you may be on the same level as them or worse? Yeah, you don't have to be a good – it's a funny thing. You don't actually have to be a good skilled curler to be a good coach, right? Like co- one of the things you learn the on the most – same in golf, right? Yeah, and you know, I think – we actually touched a bit on our interview with Tony, right? Where he's like there certainly are examples of elite-level curlers making the transition to being elite-level coaches. And so Dave Murdoch's kind of clearly the latest example of that. But there are people who might be good curlers, but not necessarily great curlers who ended up being elite level coaches, right? So um, there's certainly kind of always been that skill set. And then at the, at the elite level, a lot of top teams like Kui's team, uh, Colleen Jones's team, they would both bring as their bench coach a non-curler. And Rachel Holman, most recently with Adam Kingsbury, a non-curler basically brought in a sports psychologist instead because they felt that skill set help them deal with their demands, right? So coaching can can kind of kind of do a whole bunch of things, right? But if if it's mostly we're talking about the grassroots level, I think the biggest thing uh or the biggest demand when you get let's say you go get your level one, 
right? The two biggest ways you can contribute back at your club are to put on learn to curl and learn to curl better classes, right? And kind of uh, basically put on clinics to help people to take the skills and the knowledge that you learned, to take the drills that you learned perhaps on these coaching events and show them to people at your club who want to get better. I think that's the best way to go about it. You don't want to be, there's, there's another kind of person who comes back from a coaching course who has a lot of enthusiasm, but they end up being what I would call that guy, right? They, they then want to tell <laughs> everyone what they're doing wrong with their delivery. And I've certainly seen that a lot kind of over the years. So, so my rule of thumb, and I kind of try to make it clear as possible to people uh, around the ring, is I'm never going to tell anyone what I think they're doing wrong. But if they come and ask me for help, I'm happy to help them. But it's not my job as a coach to go around pointing out everybody's delivery faults or tell them why their team dynamics suck in the middle of a club game against them, right? It's, it's, uh, you don't want to be that kind of a coach. So the way you build credibility is by putting on uh, good events uh, that help people develop the skills they want to develop. And I guess from a player's standpoint, you know, what, what, what qualities would you look for? I mean, you, you grew up in Canada, you grew up playing juniors in Quebec. Um, you know, what kind of coaches really spoke to you and were able to, to help you improved and, and what, um, you know, what qualities were you looking for when you were looking for coaching? So, I mean, it's interesting. There really wasn't that much coaching growing up. Like my club was, I think the coaching was coming on, on ramp. Uh, and so there were certainly clubs around me that had like good, properly trained coaches running the junior programs and doing all that. But uh, my, my curling club didn't really, it was kind of what I call the old school junior program, uh, which in some way had its benefits. It was basically juniors can show up at this time and throw stones on their own and, and maybe occasionally an adult would come and help out, but <laughs> <laughs> and basically a bunch of teenagers chucking stones up and down the ice. And I mean, there's, there's value in that too, right? Like I think that, you know, uh, the juniors I work with at the rank, all, the best ones just go and mess around at the, on the ice and, and learn a lot just by goofing around with stones and trying different things. So nothing wrong with that, but there really wasn't much coaching coaching uh, until oddly enough, I took, uh, I went to, there's a thing called Sejep in Quebec, which is basically in between high school and what the, what Americans call college or everyone else calls university. There's a two year uh, kind of intermediate degree. And we had to do a phys ed class every semester and they had curling and I, and it was for marks. I said, well, this is going to be an easy set of marks for me. And it was, but the big advantage was the person running that course. She had actually gone and done her level one, level two. And she really helped correct a bunch of delivery faults that I didn't even know I had. And really kind of, that was, I was kind of 17 at the time. That really helped me uh, rebuild my delivery. So that was kind of intervention number one. And then my last year of juniors, I got picked up by one of the stronger teams in the area. And they did have a coach. They had a, a guy by the name of Steve Gaytree, who was like in Quebec at the time, the kind of big godfather figure of, of coaching was um, uh, Andre Furland kind of the inventor of the performance mm -hmm. brush, like the kind of standard brush format. So he invented that, but he'd also coached a lot of junior teams out of Trois-Rivières in Quebec. And uh, Steve had been on one of the nationally competitive teams that won, I'm not sure if they'd won a championship or he just won the provincial, but he then was had moved to Montreal for university. So he was kind of early 20s and had just volunteered at the Outremont Club to to uh, coach the junior team there. And I got picked up by those guys. And so that was kind of, we, we run the zones that year, got the provincials. And that was my kind of 
one experience with like a kind of full on coach kind of planning out a competitive season, helping a bit with the technique, but a lot more of it was about kind of game management and how we approach the different events we were in. So I'm, I'm someone who's run, learn to curls, you know, helped introduce people to the sport. But if I were to say, take that next level, if I were in, in the U S go do the level one or level two instructor program that the USCA offers, like what's the number one thing that would maybe surprise me or like, what's the number one challenge that I would face in make, making that next step? So I don't think the content would challenge you. I think, so I think a lot of people think that what they're going to learn on a level one course is technical knowledge about the game. And they certainly cover all that, but I think the big point that you learn very quickly in a level one course is you probably have, if you're, you've been curling for a few years, most of the technical knowledge you need to coach. Most of what's covered on a level one course is actually what are called how to coach skills. So basically it's not so much the content, it's, it's how you deliver that content. You learn a lot about teaching theory, how to set things up, how to organize a session. So it's actually a lot more about teaching because coaching at its core is teaching uh, than it is about um, the technical parts of the game. All right. So I guess finally, like, why should someone do go through this? Why should they go and get official certifications um, if they're used to just going to learn to curls and, and teaching people? Why Why take that next step? So I think it does three things. So like I said, most of these coaching courses focus more on how you deliver a coaching course. And that's a skill you need to learn, even if you're very knowledgeable. I won't name names, but uh, our rink manager has a very funny story about a very prominent curler coming down to lead uh, a coaching session at the rink with some business executives. And it was clear that that elite level curler didn't know how to teach basic delivery mechanics to complete novices, right? This person's extremely knowledgeable, but really struggle with the kind of, the, how do you teach this to a complete newbie? Because that, that person doesn't have to think about uh, those kinds of things. So learning the delivery, learning how to deliver a coaching session is its own skill. Um, learning, uh, I think, I think the second thing is what I call credibility. Right, which may not sound like much, but there is something to be said by basically being able to say, look, I have these certificates, I've put the time in, and this organization certifies my knowledge. So if you're going to a new place, or even in your own club, when new people come in, they want to know who this person is, especially with juniors, like parents, they, they want to know who, rightfully, they want to know who is this person who I'm entrusting to my kid for the next two to three hours, right? So certification demonstrates a level of competence. And I think the third thing is, um, and most coaching certification programs now require you to kind of do some kind of regular updates, is a lot of the delivery theory, a lot of the kind of technical theory changes over time. And so a lot of things that I was taught when I was 17, 18, 19, 20 in juniors just isn't part of standard delivery theory anymore. A lot of stuff's been undone or rethought. And so kind of staying up to date with the latest um, technique, technical theory and uh, delivery thoughts, uh, delivery technique ideas is, is important too. So it's certainly, it's something I've thought about doing, you know, just from watching you go to England and get in, get involved in all of that. Because I know, I think I saw on the USCA's website that uh, the Chesapeake Club in Easton, Maryland is offering a level one, level two. And that. That's one, like if I'm going to go out and get 
certificate actual certifications i'd like to be able to just knock out the level one level two all in the same weekend um in eastern maryland is like it's like five hours from richmond if you if you were able to go the way the crow flies it's like three hours but you have to go around the chesapeake bay to get there um so that's that makes the drive a little bit longer uh the only the, the problem personally for me as a college football fan is it's the first saturday in december which is the weekend of all the conference championship games uh that i'd like <laughs> to watch so but you know it it's something i've thought about doing yeah i think i think you know the, the one thing about coaching courses is they're offered pretty regularly all over the place so me and they actually are quite frequently offered late summer, kind of before the season starts. That so, makes sense. You know, if, if you just look around with the USCA website, I'm sure, especially GNCC clubs tend to put them on pretty regularly. So I'm sure you could grab one in August on. And uh, I think I think it's definitely worth doing it, even if all, even if what you're doing, what your ambitions are, is just improving learn to curls at your curling club. Getting the cert will help you kind of think a bit about the delivery approach, but it also kind of may open up doors later on for other things, right? Like I, I didn't set out to become an England national coach. I, I got my level one initially just because uh, I needed to help coach some of the, I aged out of juniors at my club and I they, they needed someone to help coach the juniors. So I went and did level one the first time just to help with the junior program at my club. And my ambition was just, let the, the next generation of juniors get a bit of coaching. Uh, and so that that's kind of what started me on the path initially. Uh, and it's kind of interesting where it's taken me, kind of all kinds of interesting twists and turns. Do you think you'll get uh, beyond coaching juniors? Do you think that you'll keep going you know, up the ladder and coach bigger and better things? Or, I mean, do you have any aspirations beyond what, what you're doing now? Not like I, so I, I mean, one of the things that's interesting is like, I was clear taught listening to Tony, how clear he had a vision. This was his goal. Like he, he pursued this goal the same way that an elite curler pursues the goal of getting to the Olympics. Uh, I, I don't think like personally, I don't think that's possible for me. I've got a, a career that I love and I'm not going to like throw it in to go off curling coaching all over the world. So I, I don't really see myself becoming a professional coach. There is, they're developing a level three in Scotland, which I like to pick up. Uh, like right now I've kind of been working with this group of the guys who are on Instagram <laughs> <laughs> for the last few years. And so really for me, I'm kind of like, okay, let's just see, like I, if, as long as they want me to continue coaching them, let's just see how far they can go through juniors. Right. And our goal, there's all 17 and our goal will be to make, world A's by the time they age out over the next four years. So that's really kind of my, my goal right now as a coach on top of helping develop stuff at the rink. Uh, you know, beyond that, you never know, but that's, that's even that for me is like a four year cycle is that's my, I guess that's my personal four year cycle, but, uh, it's hard to know where I'll be in four years time. So, uh, that's all of us. Um, but I mean, just, uh, just working with the junior program there, it's taking you some interesting places, right? Especially there in there in Europe with the junior spiels and the junior B championships there, right? Like you're going to Finland for junior Bs this year, I think. Yeah. So yeah, you know, it's, I think it's, I've had a real blast doing that. Right. So uh, it's so far they've always been hosted in Scandinavia. Part of that is just the size of a venue you need for the, the junior Bs is actually, I think their biggest, uh, tournament that the WCF puts on because they've got about 50 teams in it. Um, so that's cool. And that, that that's actually just, you just meet people from all over the world 
it's a lot of developing countries. So you get to know curlers from Kazakhstan. You get to know curlers from uh, Hong Kong. Um, you get to know most of the European ju- junior curling countries because they bounce back and forth between A and B. Uh, so that's all been really an interesting experience. We've made good friends with teams from Australia and New Zealand. And there's, there's no way outside of the world junior Bs I'd meet curlers from those countries because they're the other side of the planet. But we get to know each other pretty well because we see each other each season. Is there is there any like exchanging of information among like junior B coaches, uh, junior B coaches or junior B programs like that? I imagine once you get to the higher level, you you try to keep a lot of things proprietary and keep some some secrecy on what you're doing to help your team succeed but at that level is it kind of almost a we're all in this together kind of feeling you know yes and no so i actually would say that one of the things i've found with coaches from other countries who technically are rivals if i have the i have a question for them about like a how to coach question like i'm like i'm dealing with this problem or how do you deal with this thing or what's your philosophy on this technique they're more than happy to answer those kinds of questions. When it comes down to kind of the nitty gritty of how they're going to set up their team or what their tactics are, all that, obviously it's going to be a bit more yeah. more secret. But, um, you know, I've got, I've got to be good friends with the coaches from like lots of different countries. And I think they're all really happy to share ideas. And, and there is kind of a fellowship of coaches out there. All right. So do we want to talk about some of the upcoming international events that are going on. I know PACCs start next week, November the November third. You want to talk about that event for a little bit because it it's it's grown, so it, it kind of shows some grassroots growth um, in curling. Yeah, no, I think the the future is Asia in curling right now. I mean, it's I mean the future is already here given how well the Asian countries did at the last Olympics, but. There's a lot of growth outside of even if we consider Japan, Korea, and China the big powers in Asian curling. Um, there's a lot of kind of new emerging countries there, right? So yeah. the the PACC is an event to watch, I think. So that uh, that event's coming up November third through tenth. They are playing that in Pyeongchang at the same venue that hosted the Olympics last year. You can watch it on the World Curling Federation's YouTube channel. Um, and if you're like me in North America, there are draws in the morning and at night that you can watch. Um, and then the afternoon draw is in the middle of the night here in North America. Uh, the defending champs on both side are Korea and neither skip from last year is there. Um, we've talked about this a couple times. Uh, Kim on Young's team, the quote unquote garlic girls uh, right now aren't on tour. You said that there's been some funding cuts with Korean curling, which makes kind of, I mean, it makes a little bit of sense because they would have ramped up their funding leading up to hosting an Olympics. So it makes sense that the year after that they would cut that funding back quite a bit, but we have not seen, seen the garlic girls on tour and the women's team that is being sent to defend their title is Kim Min Jai and she represented Korea at the last three world juniors and Kim Soo Yuk on the men's side and his team's been doing uh, all right uh, on tour this year. Uh, I think the cool thing about this event is how much it's grown. You look at the last five years, um, you know, five years ago there were six men's teams and five women's teams in this event. 
Uh, and now it's up to nine men and seven women's teams because uh, you've added Hong Kong, Qatar, or, or Qatar. I'm not sure how it's pronounced. I think it's Qatar. Uh, and Kazakhstan now have teams in this event. So uh, like you said, uh, this region is showing a lot of growth. Yeah, and they've posed, they've it's kind of interesting. There's a, there's a big, I'd say it's the most um, spread out region in terms of quality right now, right? So uh, Japan, Korea, China have all had kind of serious Olympic programs for a decade now and are posting results on the World Curling Tour and, uh, you know, putting up really good results at World Championships too. Uh, like these new countries aren't there yet, but you, you can't really sleep on them. So just a, like a little bit of an example is Hong Kong. Uh, we played Hong Kong three years ago at the World Junior B, and they were all like 12-year-old boys who clearly hadn't curled very much. Uh, and they came and we had, we drew them again last year. We figured, okay, well, we, we knew what we were, were going to get. And, uh, they beat us not, it was like a good game back and forth, but they kind of caught us off guard because a, they'd grown up and gotten a lot of coaching and curling. There's their skill set level, skill set level had gone up, but also there they'd kind of grown up too. So, um, Hong Kong's put a lot of money and resources into their curling and they've kind of got a lot of ties with the GTA, the greater Toronto area kind of curling association. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of kind of Hong Kong expats who live in Toronto and then a lot of them curl there and then bring their knowledge back or are eligible to play for Hong Kong. So um, Hong Kong's kind of one to watch for. Uh, Kazakhstan is kind of a similar thing. I know this, in the, at least in the junior B pool, they've brought in some good European coaches to run clinics there and the skill level's gone up over the last couple of years. Qatar, I haven't yet seen show up in a junior B pool, so I can't really kind of speak to what their abilities are. I haven't seen them play, but it's the same kind of thing. It's a country with obviously Qatar's got a bit of money, so if someone there really gets behind curling, uh, you wouldn't be surprised to perhaps see see a team take off from there in a few years. Interesting change this year, and we'll see it later in November at the Europeans as well. Uh, before. The top three teams at the PACC would move on to Worlds. This year, it's just the top two. And then teams uh, who finish third and fourth are going to this new World Qualification event uh, to get the last spots in the Worlds. And this event, the World Qualification event, interestingly enough, is going to be held in New Zealand. So what do you know about the changes to qualification for Worlds and about this new event? So this is the kind of follow-on from last year's world's changes. So they expanded the size of the world championship to 13 teams. Uh, and then uh, what they've done is the, the they every year they're going to create, they've kind of created a block of um, qualification slots for each region in the world. And then the teams that just miss out on that are all going to be sent to a world qualification event. It'll be eight teams in total. So the format for this year is the two highest ranked teams at the Pacific Asia curling championship that did not qualify. Like, so as you said, third and fourth place, one team from the Americas. So whichever team wins the Americas challenge will send a team to the world qualification event. And then four teams from uh, get kind of world qualification events out of the Euros. And so that one's slightly different because the Euros are split into A, B, and C pools. It's the top two teams that don't qualify 
out of the Euro A pool. So I think going on, I, could, I think it's going to be eight, eighth and ninth place at this year's Euros. Uh, we'll get that will get sent to the world qualification event or the A pool. And then the B pool, the winner of the B pool uh, and the runner up in the B pool will also get to go to the world qualification event. And then it's a round robin with the top two teams advancing to the worlds. No playoffs, just straight round robin for that. I, I WQ don't, event? I don't quite know. I don't sure they haven't posted the draw rules. I'm just going off what was said at the world uh, curling uh, Congress kind of newsletter. So I, it's not quite clear, but for a WCF event, eight, eight team event, I'm not sure if they do a playoff event with a double, double knockout after the original round, but it'll be something similar in format to how the Olympic qualification event takes place. Right. So I think that's also eight teams. They do a round robin and some kind of playoff format at the end for A and B. On the surface, this seems this seems like a good thing because you have more teams having the ability to get to worlds or teams that you know might be stuck in that European B pool, thinking we have no chance at getting the worlds. But why are they? Why are they having? How far ahead of Worlds is this event happening? So it's going to happen in January, uh, I think third week of January. So it's going to be, I guess, depending on your gender, it'll be two months or three months ahead. So, uh, so that's the first thing. I mean, they're hosting it in New Zealand, so I think that that's kind of raised an interesting question. And and it's a I've spoken to people from Australia and New Zealand because they fly. 24 hours every year basically to get to Scandinavia to play in the world junior Bs. Yeah. And they have a rightful complaint that, you know, they have to play out of season because their seasons in the summer, because everything's up the, upside down in the Southern hemisphere. And so they have a different kind of uh, different, what do we call it? Climactic calendar. What's the term for uh, <laughs> whatever it is. I'll go with that. <laughs> whatever it is. So that w- when we're having winter in the North, they're having summer and vice versa. So their curling season follows that. So they curl in July, for instance, whereas we don't, unless you're at an arena club. And uh, so they're not, they're not really in, in season form. And it's also really expensive and very far for them to travel. Right. So th- they have, you know, they have legitimate complaints about how the, the global system kind of cuts against them based on geography. So there's, there's fairness in hosting some events there. I think the issue um, from a lot of the countries in the, what I call the European B pool is they tend to be self-funded and self-managed. And so they don't, they're not coming from national associations with hundreds of thousands or million dollar budgets that can afford to send um, a team to a country like this for a country on the other side of the world for a week for an extra tournament. Most of them basically scrape everything together for the Euros. And so if you add another event on top of that, then they, then if you kind of, your goal is worlds, uh, you're basically talking about three big events where you had two before. So minimum 50% increase in your costs uh, running your team and perhaps even more if it's going to be in New Zealand for a week. So that's kind of the drawback, I think, is that it might actually, you might actually see some teams opt not to go to that world qualification event, especially if you have a country where a team may have run out of, say, vacation days or... They may um, just not have the money to do that extra event. They may say, we can't do that this year. And in a lot of countries, maybe they have one or two teams that are of that standard that could play that kind of an event credibly. And so you very quickly see them take a tumble. So a good example, if you're, you're not quite sure what I mean by that, is 
Rasmus Sterna's team was in the Olympics, so Denmark was in the Olympics. Sterna opted not to go to Euros because he was preparing for the Olympic qualification event. The next tier Danish team got relegated uh, from the Euro B pool down to the Euro C pool, right? So the Danish standard dropped pretty quickly, and then Denmark had to play to win out of the C pool uh, last May. So some countries can tumble really quickly if their A team uh, can't go. Mm -hmm. Is there no help from the WCF to get teams to this event that they've created in New Zealand? There's no, there's no help for, for travel. I'm not sure. I mean, the, the WCF does have something called development assistance program for developing countries. How that money's used is, uh, it's primarily supposed to be used for developing curling in the country, not to pay for curlers to travel internationally. But I'm, I, that's kind of a NGB WCF kind of question. So I'm not quite sure of the specifics of that. Yeah, because it to me would make sense if you're creating this new event and you're sticking it in New Zealand and you're making teams that don't have because the teams that go to this event, unless the U.S. manages to lose to Brazil in that America's Challenge in November, which I'm sure someday Brazil's gonna win their way in, but I'm not sure it's gonna happen this year. Um, all of these teams don't have probably don't have a lot of money. So if you're the WCF and you're creating this event and you know th they have good intentions by making, you know, creating this event to make it easier for some of these teams to get to the world championships. You know, to me if you're going to put the first one in New Zealand and that's going to be your test balloon on on this event that you should help these nations, you should help these players get there. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's a fair point, right? So, I, I, again, I, I don't know. I haven't seen anything from the WCF about funding for these events. Uh, they, I mean, they're they not like – it's not like the WCF never gives anyone anything. They do help where they can, but also, you know, like any large organization, budgets are finite. Mm -hmm. So the more championships you put on, the more that's going to cost the WCF because they also have to pay for things like getting the umpires there, getting the uh, ice techs there, hosting the uh, – leasing the facility – so there's a lot of costs the WCF has to pay just to put on an event like that. So I'm not sure how much is left over after they paid for all that to fly an additional 16 teams or I guess 14 teams to their event. Yeah, that'll be that will be interesting to see. Uh, it'll also be interesting to see who from the PACC winds up having to play in this event. Um, in addition to the Korean teams, as you said, Japan and China are probably the favorites uh, here. Um, Japan, to me, is probably the favorites just based on World Curling Tour results. Uh, the Japanese women team, women's team is going to be Suzuki Futsuzawa, who we've seen several times, including in the last Olympics. Uh, and on the men's side, they are sending uh, the Yuta Matsumura team, which they've kind of had... Um, They've kind of, you know, shaken up their lineup a bit. That's Shinya Abe's team. He was the skip. Uh, and now they've brought on uh, Tetsuro Shimizu from the Morizumi team that we've seen uh, the last few years. So, you know, that's kind of a new team with, you know, they've, they've added some players from some successful teams. So in my opinion, Japan is probably the favorites on both sides. China has not announced their teams yet which seems like China always announces its teams uh, at the very end. Uh, so it'll be interesting to see which teams they wind up sending. And we talked about um, 
Korea cutting their funding. It's been with China hosting the next Olympics. It's been the exact opposite there. They've put a ton of teams on tour uh, early this season. So we will see who winds up representing China at PACCs and who winds up advancing to worlds uh, out of that event. Yeah, so I think it'll be kind of interesting to watch. And I think the PACCs, especially for like listeners in North America, probably is an event that's all that much on their radar. But if you really want to get a sense of who some of the contenders are going to be at the Worlds come come March and April, then you really ought to be paying a little bit of attention to it. And it's also one, one thing that's great about it is actually on YouTube, right? So we were talking last time about how difficult it is to find some curling, but uh an event like this, actually, WCF puts a fair number of the games on on YouTube, so it's possible to watch some of the action depending on your time zone. Yep. All right, so next time we talk to you, uh, we will dis- probably discuss the results of that event and look at the upcoming Europeans, which is later on in November. Um, Jonathan, we got a few shout outs to make, uh, this episode and amazingly they're all from Ottawa, uh, which is, which is kind of weird. Um, want to talk about in terms of developing the game, the Ottawa Colts, uh, curling tour, uh, reached out to us, uh, to ask if we would mention them. Um, and we certainly will. It's the Ottawa Colts curling series. It's a series of events in that city for, people who are just getting started in curling. Um, and it's, it, that's something that you can do in a city like Ottawa, which has a bunch of curling clubs. So you can find their schedule and everything about them at coltscurling.com or on Twitter at Colts curling. So a very interesting idea to help grow the game there in the city of Ottawa, elsewhere in Ottawa, uh, our old friend, Ron Conlon, who played with us at, uh, arena, the arena championships back in the first time that event was held in Fort Wayne reached out to us and said that uh, he enjoyed listening to the podcast. So it was good to hear from Ron. Uh, Ron's the one who uh, every now and then when I have to throw the fall out of a out of an arena curling sheet, uh, I go back to the lift delivery that I learned from Ron. So it was good to hear from him. Uh, and then finally, uh, the Game of Stones podcast, which is a couple of brothers uh, who I believe they are both based in Ottawa. Uh, they mentioned us uh, last time around and said some good things about us. So they are, you know, they're they're a podcast that I listen to a lot. Um, there's a lot of good ones out there, including them. Um, I usually listen to their podcast while either mowing or jogging. So I associate with them with pain and suffering. Uh, they're... <laughs> They're good to listen to, and they do a good job of covering the uh, the the sport on a professional level and talking about results that are going on on tour. So if you're interested in what's going on on the World Curling Tour and curling at a high level, uh, listen to them. They also had a bunch of good content over the summer and talked a lot of, you know, a lot of things that I listened to their show. I was like, man, I wish I'd thought of that subject for us to talk about. But they had some really good things. Uh, my favorite one from the summer that they did was they were talking about what makes a good skip, what makes a good lead, and uh, the positives and negatives of playing all four positions. So uh, listen to them. Uh, they're a good show. Uh, as far as our show, thank you so much for listening to us. You can find us uh, everywhere on the internet. Uh, if you want to email us and tell us uh, how awful this show was, or if you enjoyed something, uh, you can email us at rocksacrossthepond at gmail.com. 
you can find us. Let me make you a guest then. Just just keep that in mind. This is true. Uh, Anything you send us may be read and we may make you a guest on the show, but you can find us everywhere. Uh, SoundCloud, Facebook, Instagram, and on Twitter. And, and on Twitter, we are curling podcast on Twitter. Um, so please subscribe, leave us a review. Your reviews help uh, other people find the show. Uh, we're everywhere that you listen to podcasts, iTunes, Google play, Stitcher, tune in, uh, everything like that. Uh, Jonathan, uh, you know, thank you for, taking care of that interview with Tony. A lot of great things in there. Uh, What do you have coming up? I'm actually curling or coaching every weekend from now until mid-December. So it's, it's full on right now and it's fun. It's good. I think it's going to be a bit of a grind, but it's fun. Uh, So next weekend I am taking team Sugden. That's the junior team. I coach up to Brayhead, which is the name of one of the big rinks in Glasgow for a large junior bond spiel there. And then the following week, back at the curling rink in England for some playing and some coaching. Then the week after that, I'm going with my men's team up to uh, an event on what I like to think of as the DCT, which is the drinking curling tour. So it's a bit more of the social (laughs) side of the sport. Uh, And I've got a pretty good DCT record, I got to say. So uh, we're going to be playing in Stranraer, which is kind of as about as close as you can get to Ireland on this island without actually being in Ireland. It's kind of the best way I think it's pretty remote by British standards. Uh, and it's owned by, it's a hotel owned by the McMillan family. So if you know, Oh yeah. Hammy McMillan or Hammy jr. Uh, that's their hotel and they've got a force. They build a hotel there. The family's owned a hotel and they build a four sheet club there and they put on, bond spiels basically every weekend through the curling season. So if anyone ever wants to come have fun curling in Scotland, you can reach out to the podcast and I can put you in touch with uh, Northwest Castle, they call it, in Stranraer. And uh, you can look into bringing a team over there to play in a bond spiel there, which I highly recommend. Uh, I may have to do that. Keep uh, keep an open spot for me. Uh, do you want to do you want to shout out your junior team's uh, Instagram so we can get pictures of you sleeping uh, throughout their schedule? Uh, yeah, they are Team Sugden on Instagram. Give them a follow; they'll love it. I will not vouch for the content because they're seventeen-year-old boys, and we all know what kind of trouble they get into. <laughs> Just don't let them do anything that'll get you fired. <laughs> Uh. (laughs) i think one great coaching idiom i heard is when you coach you have all of the power and none of the control and that's definitely (laughs) the case with the team instagram account all right well good luck and uh thank you to everyone who listened to us we will see you next time